I will be reading from Psalm 118, verse 14 to 29. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And let us turn to Acts 5. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick to those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priests and all the associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering, what would come of this? Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles they did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. 
Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his own right hand as prince and savior, that he may give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who is honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put aside a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Before we get rolling through this passage, let's take a minute and pray together. Invite the Spirit to be with us. Father God, we thank you that your love, your wisdom, and your care has seen us through all generations, from the beginning of the time to the times that we're in now. And through all of it, you have promised that you are with us. Lord, we pray for the gift of your Spirit this morning to lead and guide and give us wisdom. Helps to see ourselves for how you see us, Help us to be encouraged to live as you would have us to live. Lord, we pray for the gift of wisdom, conviction, and understanding through your spirit to open our ears, to speak to us, to teach us, to soften our hearts, and to form us into your image through our time spent together. Lord, we entrust ourselves into your care. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So ever since Mike asked me a couple of months ago, to touch on this passage. I've struggled through what to say, how much to say, how best to say. And there were times over the past couple of days that I wondered, you know what, should I really say anything at all this morning? Or should I just call everybody to a half hour of lament and prayer for the world that we're in? Because there's times I've wondered about that. 
But having wrestled through all of this, and with all that's gone on in the church over the past couple of years, I'm feeling pretty compelled to bring some perspective from the early church for us this morning to come to bear on our collective consciousness, as it were, as we try and live and be faithful in the day and age that we're in. So one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in my life through curling, that's me, about 20 years, 20 pounds, and a beard ago. Yeah, wow, who thought I could go this far? But uh, anyways, one of the greatest lessons I've learned from curling is that no matter how much you wish it to be so, solid matter has yet to pass through solid matter at any given point in time. It doesn't work. It's probably been 15 years since I got to last play the game that I really love, and I coached it regularly from the time that I was like 10 till I was 20, and then parenting happens and everything disappears. But in that time... I learned that no matter how well those stones line up, no matter how well you think you see it, no matter how easily you think you can see that glorious quadruple raise takeout that will make you a legend in the local club for the rest of your life, if the port is too small, it's never going to happen. Because matter doesn't pass through matter. When two extremely dense objects wind up smashing into each other, they create a lot of commotion all around them until things begin to settle down to normal again. And my kids learned a similar kind of lesson in playing with Lego as they were younger. Because no matter how sturdily you build your Lego set, no matter how precise you are, no matter how well you follow the instructions... If you smash them together, as if in battle, both are going to be destroyed in the process. It doesn't stop kids from doing it, but it's a way that they learn the lesson, right? It's one thing to learn about the physics of collisions through curling. It's another life lesson for kids to learn about the damage that collisions can bring through being reckless with their Lego models. It's no different in the world of politics and power systems that we live in and experience around us. There's always been a level level of unrest between people with different understandings of the world and how things should be and how things should work best. But over the last couple of years and months, it's become especially antagonistic and polarized in the Western world. We've seen what happens when ideological kingdoms collide with each other. Now, Mike and Jared have spent the last few weeks teaching us and talking about the amazing things that happened in the church when people started turning away from who they were towards following Jesus instead. But when God's kingdom showed up, it wasn't a simple matter of entering an ideological vacuum in the world that they were in. The powers and the kingdoms that were already there didn't take the encroachment on their space, their power, and their territory just lying down. So what happens when kingdoms collide? I think we can see a few things from the early church. that The inbreaking of God's kingdom led and still leads to social unrest. It's written in verses 12 through 16 that the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. 
And as a result, people brought sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, it's one thing if people show up in your town shouting crazy ideas and everybody just brushes them off and they go on with life, right? Crazy happens, no harm done. The world has always had its fringe movements that we see that come and go. That wasn't the case for the Jewish teachers of the law with the disciples that we're reading about here, though. The disciples showed up and started spouting what they were thought to be crazy things, but they started healing people that were unhealable in the name of Jesus, and everyone took notice, and instead of brushing it off, folks started buying in. And that was where the friction between the kingdoms colliding started to happen. Because Jewish people followed their Jewish faith and their Jewish teachers of the law, and that's how it had been for thousands of years. No questions asked. And now these guys show up seemingly out of nowhere. Thousands of people go on following them instead. And not only that, they're now flooding the streets with the sick and the lame at all hours of the day, interrupting daily life and creating a massive sore spot for all of those who are in power. Now, having this new movement flooding all spheres of life created all kinds of social unrest among the people of Israel that questioned the power of the teachers of the law and started shifting the social order of things really quickly. And that made the teachers of the law very uncomfortable because it's no different now when movements happen that create unrest that question authorities. Those kind of things never go unchecked. Now, we all get annoyed when things happen that are out of the norm that get in our way and make our life annoying, right? I will never understand people who drive 30 kilometers an hour down Grant Road. They're the worst. I have no idea who these people are. If you want to talk to me sometime and explain yourself, I'm happy to be gracious. But you've got a lot to explain. Folks in downtown Ottawa were sick unto despair for the loss of their normal over the past month. Now imagine you've got a group of people upending your religion and your entire national identity in the name of a guy that you crucified as an enemy of the state and a blasphemer, and now you're seeing these guys lauded as heroes in your streets. In the mind of the Pharisee and the Sadducee and the Sanhedrin, this shall not stand, right? This has got to stop. The church at its best questions the powers and authorities today too. None of capitalism, socialism, democracy, or liberalism are values of the kingdom of God. And when the church is truly the church... It stands in contrast to the way of the world and calls out its failures. A group of people willing to give of their freedoms to proclaim love and grace of Jesus despite opposition can never be fully silenced or ignored. Individuals that seek the good of others above and beyond themselves kind of has an effect on consumer-driven ways of running economies and systems of doing things. If the church is actually being the church, 
It sticks out like a sore thumb no matter what ideological culture it comes into. This kind of disruption won't go unchecked, though. It says that the powers will work to restore the status quo, and that's exactly what the Sadducees did. For the folks Peter and the disciples were dealing with, it involved trying to exert power to try and silence the teaching regarding Jesus, and ultimately working to imprison the followers when they refused to stop teaching about Jesus. The teachers of the law were willing to do anything necessary to restore things back to the equilibrium that they were comfortable in before this all happened. As the authorities, regardless of how much the dissenters were tangibly helping their people. Imagine imprisoning and oppressing folks for helping the poor and needy in your streets in the midst of Roman occupation. Because that's where the Sadducees found themselves. Partisanship is a heck of a drug, you guys. Powerful authorities will do anything in their power to remain powerful authorities and restore the status quo in the face of unrest. Now, most of us have likely seen mobiles hanging above baby cribs before, right? Things like this. And we look at them and we think, it's just a really simple toy to keep kids interested. But the reality is they're kind of complicated models of physics. And if one part gets bumped or falls off completely, the whole thing goes out of balance and wobbles all over the place trying to find some kind of new equilibrium where things settle again. There was a rabbi and therapist named Edwin H. Friedman who wrote at length about how families and organizations do the exact same thing always working to maintain the status quo and balance of things, working to get back there by whatever means are necessary when things get shook up and stop being at balance. Even when it's a terrible normal, people will work to get back to what they've known because it's all they've ever known. There is a ton of discomfort that comes in creating lasting change, and if people like those in authority have reason to resist that, you can bet that their reaction will be harsh because the powers will flex their muscles to silence disruption. It's written in verses 17 to 26. That then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they'd been told and began to teach the people. And when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers didn't find them there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. And someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They didn't use force because they feared the people would stone them. You see, the Sadducees weren't interested in the ideas and interruptions of their public life that these Christians were bringing about, and so they did everything in their power to get rid of them. 
the usual tropes for people in power. They threatened them. They imprisoned them. And they gathered the rest of the authorities against them. And the interesting thing is, this wasn't just the case for ancient Jewish religious squabble one-offs. This has been the way that authorities have acted when their authority is challenged throughout human history. They flex their muscles and exert their will through legislation and by force through whatever means they have available to them. Now, for the last number of decades, as Canadians and North Americans, when we saw governments that were reacting to social unrest, it was always at arm length, over there, with those people, under governments that weren't our problem. In the past couple years, we've seen up-close reactions by a Trump government that called in the National Guard to deal with Black Lives Matter protesters that they didn't like. In the past month, we saw a Trudeau government invoke Emergency Measures Act and bring in riot police and freeze finances from protesters they didn't like. No political ideology is righteous, and all will use whatever powers they have at their grasp to restore the status quo and stop unrest that questions their authority. Thankfully, there hasn't been a government here in Canada in generations that has decided to view the church as a threat. But honestly, that might be more of an indictment to the church than anything else. We shouldn't expect it'll stay that way forever. The powers can make life difficult for Jesus' people if they want to. It says in verses 17 to 18 that then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of Sadducees were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. The disciples in the early church wouldn't stop preaching about Jesus in his kingdom, in word and action, even when they were told to stop to do so by their Sadducees and their religious authorities. The church wouldn't stop being the church because people in power didn't like it. Because newsflash, they're not the church's authority. Being Jesus' people didn't shield the church from persecution, no, either. And it's no different today. So let's talk about persecution for a minute. First of all, let's talk about what persecution is not. Now, little analogy here. If I were to eat, my favorite, a double Whopper combo every day for a week, it's not my body's fault when it feels sluggish, awful, and gets fat, right? On this, we can agree. Does it feel good in the moment? Yes, it does. Very good. But I don't get to complain about how my body reacts afterwards violently because I chose that for me. There are times it might feel good in the moment to act indignantly as a jerk for Jesus. Fighting in the culture wars, sticking it to the bad guys, waging a holy war. But when people put push back against the church and hate Christians as a result, we don't get to complain about that because we chose that. That's not persecution. That's justice. Being a jerk for Jesus doesn't lay up treasures in heaven, you guys. And we need to remember that. To bring that home for a minute, right here and now, being asked to wear a mask in public or dealing with vaccine passports is not persecution of the church. 
We may not like the politics of it. And that's a totally fine discussion to have. That's a totally other discussion to have, though. Good and godly people can see those things differently. And we can be gracious to each other in the family of God and talk about it, yes. But not a single one of those things has anything to do with being persecuted for the sake of Christ. Like none. Zero zilch nada. Not even a question. And it's embarrassing and frankly shameful how much the Christian language seems to have become intertwined with political hot takes on all sides of things in our culture. It's become increasingly common for Christians to cry persecution during the culture wards of the past century. But it's not persecution. We are soft and entitled. After 1,500 years of being the dominant culture in the Western world, we aren't anymore. And we're seemingly at a loss as to how to handle it and think any time that we don't get our way, it's persecution. There's probably good lessons for us to be learned from our fellow believers overseas that have never been in that spot of power. They know what persecution is. We only think that we've got it rough because we've been in the cultural power position for so long that anything other than getting our way in everything outright seems like oppression. But that's never been the way for Jesus and his church. And we better be careful because someday persecution may come for real here. And then the church that cried persecution may wind up like the boy that cried wolf. The thing to remember is if you start feeling your hackles getting up, is that God doesn't need you to fight a battle or win a war for him. Jesus just asked us to live faithfully and love our enemies as ourselves. Because in the end, and this is the key, the powers can't stop God's kingdom. The story continues on in verses 19 to 26. It says, During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them all out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. So at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. And when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers didn't find them there, so they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, and when we opened them, we found nobody inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. It's interesting. The apostles were not out to win a culture war or pick a fight. They were out there to love other people in Jesus' name, and to, as the angel put it, Tell the people about this new life. The church is not in a culture war for the control of nations. Winning a nation is not on Jesus' radar at any point. That's the thinking of empire, not the thinking of God and his kingdom. God's kingdom values are these. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Acting grace, peace, reconciliation, generosity, and self-sacrifice. And proclaim the good news for the poor and the oppressed. 
Jesus' life, death, and resurrection show that God has already won the war. We're just called to live faithfully, to love others, and tell all about this new life, as the angels put it. Because in the end, the powers cannot stop the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, and Jesus wins. Now, I used to wrestle with my three boys in the basement all the time back in the day. They would run across the room and throw themselves at me. They would pile on top of me and sit on my head or my chest. They'd team up together two and three at a time at some times. And it didn't matter because they had no shot of beating me. I was the undisputed heavyweight champion of Kramer Family Basement Wrestling. Like, it's not even close, because I knew in the end, I could just stand up and carry them all away all at once if I needed to. The battle was not close. They could put up a fight if they wanted to, but the outcome was already decided, you guys. The work of God's kingdom is absolutely no different, because the powers of the world can assert their domain. They can try to make people stop speaking. They can lock people away or make it socially unacceptable. But in the end, God wins. It's literally the story of the whole book of Revelation. It doesn't matter what happens in the meantime because things might get tough. But working for the kingdom of God won't always go easily. So do so with confidence that God wins. The powers will try to control the message of the world, but Christians must live faithfully and speak the truth in love. It's recorded in verses 27 through 42 that the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. And God exalted him to his right hand as a prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, and they had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 
Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, it's not really a funny situation that the disciples found themselves in, but it is inherently funny to me that when the Sadducees hauled the apostles back in after all of this, they wouldn't stop preaching Jesus, and he essentially led to the apostles, boys, did I stutter? They thought they made it all clear, right? It was absolutely mind-boggling to these teachers of the law that when guys faced with a direct order from the priests to stop, when threatened with bodily harm, when literally imprisoned, they still wouldn't stop healing people and teaching about Jesus. Because the disciples understood and lived out the belief that no matter what happened to them in this life, God's approval was ultimately all that mattered. It didn't keep the Sanhedrin from insane rage, though, over their powerlessness to stop them. So finally, a wise old man essentially informed the Sanhedrin of what they should have known all along. If they were right and God was on their side, the apostles would come to nothing in the end. But if they were wrong and God was with the apostles, there was nothing they could do to stop it. So in the end, everybody had to agree that God wins. It didn't stop the Sanhedrin from giving the apostles a severe beating on their way out the door in frustration. But they had to accept regardless, at the end of the day, God wins. Working for the kingdom of God won't always go easily, but do so with the confidence that in the end God wins. Now, do you notice how the disciples took the beating that they got? When they got released... Did they lawyer up? Did they protest the abuse? Did they rally to demand their freedom be recognized? Nope. Do you know why? They gave thanks and rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of the suffering of the disgrace of the name. They were honored to have received the same treatment that Jesus got. Libertarian understandings of freedom have become the golden calf of the Western church, you guys. The freedom that Jesus preached about was freedom from the power of sin and death to let us do the right thing forever in following Jesus. Not the freedom to do whatever we want and feel like without consequences. That's the American dream, not the dream of the kingdom of God. If followers of Jesus are oppressed and persecuted for being jerks, that's not what the apostles were going through. That's justice. It's a totally different matter to be persecuted for faithfulness in loving Jesus and preaching the message of grace and forgiveness in his kingdom. If and when persecution of the church comes to Western society, I hope and pray that it's for the reasons that the church did the right thing, like the apostles, and will be able to rejoice in being identified with Christ in the moment. When things get hard, we need encouragement to keep going. And I'll tell you, the New Testament is chock full of it. Now, I went and got myself an exercise bike back in December after almost two years of not going to the gym. And I have put in 88 rides in the first 66 days that I had the bike. And I have lost less than half a pound. 
but I carry on. I will not be dissuaded. My favorite instructor on the app that I've got is somebody named Nicole Griffin. She makes me suffer more, and no one makes me more thankful for it. She regularly says things like, remember, you signed up for this. Remember why you're doing this and who it is that you are doing this for. And don't let off the tension and take it easy now because the suffering makes you stronger. That's it, church. That's the message. If you suffer at all for faithfully loving others and speaking Jesus, remember, you signed up for this. Remember who you're doing it for. And don't take it easy now because the suffering makes you stronger. Even if things get tough, remember in all things, the kingdom of God will not be stopped. And in the end, God wins. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the king over all. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks when something's just straight true. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to live in our midst, in the midst of our struggles and our suffering, experiencing life the way that we do and showing that there is indeed a better way. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness in willing to experience suffering and taking it on yourself so that we can see the best way to be human. Thank you for the hope that you'd offered us in forgiveness of sins and the chance for a new life as we turn our allegiances away from things that cannot save us, that cannot bring hope or meaning, and instead turn and offer our lives to you as your servants and say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Spirit, be with us and empower us. Give us courage to love and speak your love and truth faithfully in our lives, when it's comfortable and especially when it's not, that the world may know that you are love, you are hope, you are true peace, and that you are the one just king and ruler of all. Lord, your will be done. Amen.